Chapter 3. The Homeless During the years that followed Kuno's escapade, two important developments took place in the machine. On the surface, they were revolutionary, but in either case, men's minds had been prepared beforehand, and they did but express tendencies that were latent already. The first of these was the abolition of respirators. Advanced thinkers, like Vashti, had always held it foolish to visit the surface of the Earth. Airships might be necessary, but what was the good of going out there for mere curiosity and crawling along for a mile or two in a terrestrial motor? The habit was vulgar and perhaps fatally improper. It was unproductive ideas and had no connection with the habits that really mattered. So respirators were abolished, and with them, of course, the terrestrial motors, and except for a few lecturers who complained that they were debarred from access to their subject matter, the development was accepted quietly. Those who still wanted to know what the Earth was like had only after all to listen to some gramophone or to look into some simnograph. And even the lecturers acquiesced when they found out that the lecture on the sea was nonetheless stimulating when it was compiled out of other lectures that had already been delivered on the same subject. Beware of first-hand ideas, exclaimed one of the most advanced of them. First-hand ideas do not really exist, but they are the physical impressions produced by love and fear. And on this gross foundation, who could erect a philosophy? Let your ideas be second-hand, and if possible, tenth-hand, for then they'll be far removed from the most disturbing element, direct observation. Do not learn anything about this subject of mine, the French Revolution. Learn instead what I think of but Endorthorn thought Horizon, thought Gooch, thought Yonghu, thought Chi Songbing, thought Langdon Farm, thought Carlyle, thought Mirabeau said about the French Revolution. Through the medium of these eight great minds, the blood that was shed at Paris and the windows that were broken at Versailles, we clarified to an idea which you may employ most profitably in your daily lives. But be sure that the intermediates are many and varied. For in history, one authority exists to counteract another. Ryzen must contradict the skepticism of Yongho and Einstein. I must myself counteract the impe impetuosity of Gooch. You who listen to me are in a better position to judge about the French Revolution than I am. Your descendants will be in an even better position than you, for they will learn that you think what I think, and yet another intermediate will be placed in the chain. And in time, his voice rose, there will become a generation that has gone beyond facts, beyond impressions, a generation absolutely colourless, a generation sapphirically free from tainted personality, will see the French Revolution not as it happened, nor as they would have liked it to happen, but as it would have happened had it been taken place in the days of the machine. Tremendous applause greeted this lecture, which did voice a feeling already latent in the minds of men, a feeling that terrestrial facts must be ignored, and the abolition of respirators was a positive gain, for it even suggested that airships should be abolished too. This was not done, because the airships had somehow worked themselves into the machine system. But year by year, they were used less, and mentioned less by thoughtful men. The second great development was the re-establishment of religion. This too had been voiced in the celebrated lecture. No one could mistake the reverent tone with which the peroration had concluded, and it wakened a responsive echo in the heart of each. Those who had long worshipped silently now began to talk, they described the strange feeling of peace that came over them when they handled the book of the machine, the pleasure that it was to repeat certain numerals out of it, have a little meaning those numerals conveyed to the outward ear, the ecstasy of touching a button, however important, 
were ringing an electric bell, however superfluously. The machine, they exclaimed, feeds us and clothes us and houses us. Through it we speak to another, through it we see one another, in it we have our being. The machine is the friend of ideas and the enemy of superstition. The machine is omnipotent, eternal, blessed is the machine. Before long, this allocution was printed on the first page of the book, and in subsequent editions, the ritual swelled into a complicated system of praise and prayer. The word religion was, sedici was seditiously avoided, and in theory, the machine was still the creation and implement of man. But in practice, however, save a few retrogrades, worshipped as divine. Nor was it worshipped in unity. One believer would be chiefly impressed by the blue optic plates through which he saw other believers, other by the mending apparatus, which Simfor Kuno had been compared to worms, another by the lifts, another by the book. Well, each one would pray to this and that and ask it to seed for him with the machine as a whole. Persecution, that was also present. It did not break out for reasons that we set out shortly, but it was latent. And all who did not accept the minimum known as undenominational mechanism lived in danger of homelessness, which means death, as we now know. To attribute these two great developments to the Central Committee is to take a very narrow review of civilization. The Central Committee announced developments, it's true, but they know were no more the cause of them than they were the kings of imperialistic worlds the cause of war. Rather, did they not yield to some invincible pressure which came no one knew whither and with which gratified was succeeded by some new pressure equally invincible to such a state of affairs, it is convenient to give you the name of progress. No one confessed the machine was out of hand. Year by year, it was served with increasing efficiency and decreased intelligence. The better a man knew his own duties upon it, the less he understood the duty of his neighbour. And in all the world, there was not one who understood the monster as a whole. Those master brains have perished. They have left full directions, it's true, and the successors had each of them lost a portion of those directions. But humanity, in its desire for comfort, had overreached itself. It had exploited the riches of nature too far. Quietly and complacently, it was sinking into decadence. And progress had come to mean the progress of the machine. As for Vashti, her life went peacefully forward until the final disaster. She made her room dark and slept. She awoke and made the room light. She lectured and attended lectures. She exchanged ideas with her innumerable friends and she believed she was growing more spiritual. At times, a friend was granted euthanasia and left his or her room for the homelessness that is all befond all human conception. Vashti did not mind much. After an unsuccessful lecture, she would sometimes ask for euthanasia herself, but the death rate was not permitted to exceed the birth rate, and the machine had hitherto refused it to her. The troubles began quietly, long before she was conscious of them. One day she was astonished at receiving a message from her son. They never communicated, having nothing in common. But she had only heard indirectly he was still alive and had been transferring from the northern hemisphere, where he had behaved so mischievously, to the southern, indeed to a room not far from her own. Does he want me to visit him, she thought? Never again, never. And I have not the time. No, it was madness of another kind. He refused to visualise his face upon the blue plate and was speaking out of the darkness with solemnity, he said. The machine stops. What do you say? The machine is stopping. I know it. I know the signs. She burst into a peal of laughter. He heard it and was angry and spoke no more. 
Can you imagine anything more absurd? She cried to her friend. A man who was my son believed that the machine is stopping. would be impious if it was not mad. The machine is stopping, her friend replied. What does that mean? The phrase conveys nothing to me. Nor to me. He does not refer, I suppose, to the trouble we've been having lately with the music. Oh no, of course not. Let's not talk. Let us talk about music. Have you complained to the authorities? Yes. And they say it wants mending, and they referred it to the Committee of Mending Apparatus. I complained of those curious gasping sighs that defigure the symphonies of the Brisbane School. They sound to me like one in pain. The Committee of the Mending Apparatus said that it will be remedied shortly. Obscurely worried, she resumed her life. For one thing, the defect in the music irritated her. For another thing, she could not forget Kuno's speech. If he had known that the music was out of repair, he could not know it, for he detested music. If he had known it was wrong, the machine stops was exactly the venomous sort of remark she would have made. Of course, he had made it adventure. But the coincidence annoyed her, and she spoke with some petulance to the committee of the mending apparatus. They replied, as before, that the defect would be set right shortly. Shortly, at once, she retorted. Why should I be worried by imperfect music? Things were always put right at once. If you do mend it at once, I shall complain to the Central Committee. No personal complaints are received by the Central Committee, the Committee of the Mending Apparatus reply. Through whom should I make my complaint? Through us. I complain, then. Your complaint should be forwarded in turn. Have others complained? This question was unmechanical, and the Committee of the Mending Apparatus refused to answer it. It is too bad, she exclaimed to another one of her friends. There was never such an unfortunate woman as myself. I can never be sure of my music now. It gets worse and worse every time I summon it. I too have troubles, the friend replied. Sometimes my ideas are interrupted by a slight jarring noise. What is it? I do not know whether it's in my head or inside the wall. Complain, in either case. I have complained, and my complaint will be forwarded in its turn to the Central Committee. Time passed, and they resented the defects no longer. The defects had not been remedied, and the human tissues in the later day had become so subservient that they had readily adapted themselves to every caprice of the machine. The sigh of the crisis of the Brisbane Symphony no longer irritated Vashti. She accepted it as part of the melody. The jarring noise, whether in her head or in the wall, was no longer resented by her friend. And so with the mouldy artificial fruit, so with the bathwater that began to stink, so with the defective rhymes that the poetry machine had taken to emit, all would be bitterly complained of at first, and then acquiesced and forgotten. Things went from bad to worst unchallenged. It was otherwise with the failure of the sleeping apparatus. This was a more serious stoppage. There came a day when over the whole world, in Sumatra, in Wessex, in the numerous cities of Courland and Brazil, the beds, when summoned by their tired owners, failed to appear. It may be a ludicrous matter, but it is from the date we may date the collapse of humanity. The, responsible com the committee responsible for the failure was assailed by complaints which it referred, as usual, to the Committee of the Mending Apparatus, who in turn assured them that their complaints would be forwarded to the Central Committee. But the discontent grew, for mankind was not yet sufficiently adaptable to do without sleeping. Someone is meddling with the machine, they began. Someone is trying to make himself king, to reintroduce the personal element. Punish that man with homelessness. To the rescue, avenge the machine, avenge the machine. War, kill the man. But the Committee of the Mending Apparatus now came forward and allayed the panic with well-chosen words. It confessed that the mending apparatus was itself need of repair. The effect of this frank confession was admirable. 
Of course, said the famous lecturer, he is of the French Revolution, who gilded each decay with splendor. Of course, we shall not oppress our complaints now. The mending apparatus has treated us so well in the past that we sympathize with it, and we will wait patiently for its recovery. In its own good time, it will resume its duties. Meanwhile, let us do without our beds, our tabloids, our other little wants. Such, I feel sure, should, would be the wish of the machine. Thousands of miles away, his lecture applauded. The machine still linked them. Under the seas, beneath the roots of the mountain, ran the wires through which they saw and heard, the enormous eyes and ears that they were heritage, and the hum of many workings clothed their thoughts in one garment of subserviency. Only the old and sick remained ungrateful, for it was rumoured that euthanasia too was out of order, and the pain had started reappearing among men. It became difficult to read. A blight entered the atmosphere and dulled its luminosity. At times, Vashti could scarcely see across her room. The air too was foul, loud of the complaints, impotent the remedies. Heroic the turn of the lecturer as he cried, Courage, courage! What matter so long as the machine goes on? To it, the darkness and the light are one. For though things have improved again after a time, the old brilliancy was never recaptured, and humanity never recovered from its entrance into twilight. There was hysterical talk of measures, of provisional dictatorship, and the habits, uh, inhabitants of Sumatra were asked to familiarise themselves with working of a central power station, the said power station being situated in France. But for the most part, panic resigned. The men spent their strength praying to their books, tangible proofs of the machine's incompetence. There were gradations of terror. At times came rumours of hope. The mending apparatus was almost mending, mended. The machines of the enemy had got under. New nerve centres were evolving, which would do the work even more magnificently before. But there came a day, without the slightest warming, without the previous hint of feebleness, the entire communication system broke down all over the world. And the world, as they understood it, ended. Vashti was lecturing at the time, and her early remarks had been punctuated with applause. As she proceeded, the audience became silent, and at the conclusion, there was no sound. Somewhat displeased, she called a friend who was a, a specialist in sympathy. No sound, doubtless the friend was sleeping. And so with the next friend she tried to summon, so with the next, until she remembered Kuno's cryptic remark, the machine stops. The phrase still conveyed nothing. If eternity was stopping, it would of course be set going shortly. For example, there was still a little light in air. The atmosphere has improved a few hours previously. There was still the book. And while there was the book, there was security. Then she broke down, for with the cessation of activity came an unexpected terror, silence. She had never known silence, and the coming of it nearly killed her. It did kill many thousands of people outright. Ever since her birth, she'd be surrounded by a steady hum. It was to her ear what artificial air was to her, uh, her lungs. And agonizing pains shot across her head. And scarcely knowing what she did, she stumbled forward and pressed the unfamiliar button, the one that opened the door of her cell. Now, the door of the cell worked on a simple hinge of its own. It was not connected with a central power station dying far away in France. It opened, rousing immoderate hopes in Vashti, for she thought the machine had been mended. It opened, and she saw the dim tunnel that curved away, far away towards freedom. One look and she shrunk back, for the tunnel was full of people. She was almost the last in that city to have taken alarm. People at any time repelled her, 
and these were nightmares from her worst dreams. People were crawling about, people were screaming, whimpering and gasping for breath, touching each other, vanishing in the dark, and ever and anon being pushed off the platform onto the live rail. Some were fighting around the electric bells, trying to summon trains which could not be summoned. Others were yelling for euthanasia for respirators or blaspheming the machine. Others stood at the door of their cells fearing, like herself, either to stop in them or to leave them. And behind all, the uproar was silence. The silence which is the voice of the earth and the generations who have gone. It was worse than solitude. She closed her door again and sat down to wait for the end. The disintegration went on, accompanied by horrible cracks and rumbling. The valves that restrained the medical apparatus must have weakened, for it ruptured and hung hideously from the ceiling. The floor heaved and fell and flung from her chair. A tube oozed towards her serpent fashion. And at last, the final horror approached. The light began to ebb, and she knew civilization's long day was closing. She whirled around, praying to be safe from this, at any rate kissing the books, pressing button after button. The uproar outside was increasing, and even penetrated the wall. Slowly, the brilliancy of her cell was dimmed. The reflections faded from metal switches. Now she could not see the reading stand, now not the book, though she held it in her hand. Light followed the flight of sound, air was following light, and the original void returned to the cavern from which she had so long been excluded. Vashti began to whirl like the devotees of an earlier religion, screaming, praying, striking at buttons with bleeding hands. It was thus that she opened her prison and escaped, escaped in the spirit. At least, so it seems to me, ere my meditation closes. So she escapes in the body, I cannot perceive that. She struck by chance a switch that released the door, and the rush of foul air upon her skin, the loud throbbing whispers in her ears, told her she was facing the tunnel again, and that tremendous platform on which she'd seen men fighting, they were not fighting now. Only whispers remained, and the little whimpering groans. They were dying by hundreds in the dark. She burst into tears. Tears answered her. They wept for humanity, those two, not for themselves. They could not bear that this should be the end. Ere silence was completed, their hearts were open, and they knew what had been most important on earth. Man, the flower of all flesh, the noblest of all creatures visible, man who had once made God in his image, had mirrored his strength on the constellations. Beautiful naked men was dying, strangled in the garments he had woven. Century after century he had toiled, and here was his reward. Truly the garments seemed heavenly at first, shut with colours of culture, sewn with threads of self-denial. And heavenly it had been, so long as man could shed it at will and live by the essence that is his soul, and the essence equally divine that is his body, the sin against the body, for it was in that that they wept in chief, the centuries of wrong against the muscles and the nerves, and those five portals by which we can alone apprehend closing over it with the tilt of evolution, till the body was white pap. The home of ideas was colourless, last stoshy stirrings of a spirit that grasped the stars. Where are you? she sobbed. His voice in the darkness. Here. Is there any hope, Kuno? None for us. Where are you? She crawls towards him over the bodies and the dead. His blood spurted over her hands. Quicker, he gasps. I'm dying. But we touch, we talk, 
not through the machine. He kissed her. We have come back to our own. We die, but we recaptured life, as it was in Wessex, when Alfred overthrew the Danes. We know what they know outside. They who dwelt in the cloud, that is the colour of pearl. But Kuno, is it true? Are there still men on the surface of the earth? Is this tunnel, this poison darkness, really not the end? He replied, I've seen them, spoken to them, loved them. They are hiding in the mist and the ferns till our civilization stops. Today they are homeless. Tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow some fool will start the machine again. Tomorrow? Never, said Kuno, never. Humanity has learnt its lesson. As he spoke, the whole city was broken like a honeycomb. An airship had sailed in through the vomitory into a ruined wharf. It crashed downwards, exploding as it went, rending gallery after gallery with its wings of steel. For a moment, they saw the nations of the dead, and before they joined them, scraps of untainted sky. <laughs>